Well, in Luke's gospel, we, he, Luke recalls the story of a rich young man who came to Jesus asking how he could inherit eternal life. Jesus told him to do the commandments. And he said, I've done those, but what do I lack? Jesus said, sell all you have, give to the poor, and then come follow me. He went away sad. That reaction of the disciples, uh, the reaction of the disciples when Jesus said, it's harder for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Either they said, well, then who could be saved? Who can be saved? They were thinking, along with the rest of the world, even today, that if life goes well, you must be blessed. If you suffer or you have some problem, then you must be in some kind of trouble with God. It's like they said about the blind man whom Jesus was about to heal. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? It's the same thinking that the false prosperity gospel has. That it looks at God as a a means to a better life. Wealth and ease means you have faith. And God is for you. Suffering, poverty means you don't have faith and God is somehow against you. Well, that kind of thinking is opposed to God's word and to the examples of Christ and even his apostles. Like we saw in Romans 8:17, Paul says, "Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs and of God and co-heirs with Christ." If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. You see, that's the pattern. Suffering and then glory. It's how it was for Christ. And it's what we all should expect as we follow Christ. Now Paul wrote this letter to the church in Rome around the year 57 A.D. According to the Roman historian Tacitus, about seven years later, in 64 AD, the emperor Nero burned Rome to the ground, and then he blamed it on the Christians. He said it was their fault. The persecutions began with Christians being forced to act in the theaters covered with the skins of animals so that they might be torn by the dogs until they died. Others were dressed in shirts made stiff with wax and then fixed to trees and set on fire to provide light for Nero's gardens. Many Christians died during Nero's persecutions, along with both Peter and Paul. Now, Paul may not have foreseen what this Roman church was about to face in those next seven years, but he knew what following Jesus meant. This good shepherd may lead them through a valley of the shadow of death before coming to green pastures and still waters. 
Because it's the pattern of Christ. Suffering, then glory. Now the main point for the sermon today is that the God who loves and justifies us is for us. The God who loves and justifies is for us. And there are three points. Verses 31 to 32, God is for us. Verses 33 to 34, no condemnation. And verses 35 to 39, no separation. So let's start there in verse 31. Paul asks two questions. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, first we have to ask, what are these things he's responding to? Well, in the passage before, chapter 8, verses 1 to 30, Paul's been speaking about God's call to believe in Christ and walk in the new way of the Spirit. He calls, those he calls are adopted into his family, and he is working all things together for good to conform them to the image of his Son. That is, he's making them holy. These things refers to all that is that. God is doing and that we cannot do ourselves. Now, when Paul says God is for us, well, we also need to consider who is this us that he's talking about. Verse 33 says it's those whom God has chosen. Paul will talk a lot about that in the about God's choosing in the next chapters, chapters 9 to 11. But what we know now is that it's connected to those who receive God's free grace. As Paul said in in chapter 3, 24 and 25, they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. We can make this connection because it's what Paul refers to when he says God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And that leads to the third question that he asks in this passage. How will he not also along with Christ graciously give us all things? And so we have to ask again, what are all things that God would give us? Is it a Mercedes G-Class? Is it that dream house? Is it the spouse or kids that you long for? Or a life of ease or comfort? Is that the all things that God will graciously give us? Along with Christ? Well, to answer this, let's consider five things that we have already seen from chapters 3 to 8, that God has given us in Christ. First thing is Christ Himself. He is the sacrifice of atonement that redeems us from the slavery to sin and an obligation to obey the law of Moses. The first thing is Christ Himself that He's given us. Secondly, He's given us Christ's righteousness. 
It's Christ's righteousness that justifies us before God's holy presence. The third thing that, that these scriptures have told us that God give us, gives to us is God's grace. We stand in His grace that He gives to give us peace with God and the hope of receiving His glory. The fourth thing is deliverance. Deliverance from this body of death. We, we have been released through this gift of eternal life. We've been released from this body of death. Thanks be to God, he said in chapter 7, verse 24. And then, fifthly, he's given us his Holy Spirit. Remember last week, he is with us and in us so that we can walk in the obedience of faith. Now given, God's given us all these things. And when, when I see this list, well, you can, it's like the first song that we sang coming in here. You can let the world keep all other offers. Let's take what God's given us in Jesus. Because it's so much better. Now, in addition to all these things that God's given us, Paul mentions again in verse 34 that there is no condemnation. We heard that back in chapter 8, verse 1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verses 33 and 34 in this section are focusing on Christ satisfying God's justice. So let's consider that. Paul asks a few more questions here. And here's how we know he's talking about justice. He says, who can bring a charge against us? Who can call us guilty? Well, Satan is the great accuser, right? In the book of Job, we see Satan uh, accusing Job in God's presence. He only fears you because you blessed him and protected him. Take all that away and he'll curse you to his face, to your face, Satan says to God. Well, Paul explained in Romans 3 and 4 that God has declared us 100% righteous through faith in Jesus. 100%. It's God who justifies through faith in Jesus, our sins are forgiven. He has credited to us the righteousness of Christ. So, now it is already but not yet. The, the, the time between justification and glory, it's a time where we're growing in holiness. And through this time, Satan would come at you and try to accuse you. Oh, there you go again. There you've fallen down again. How are you going to ever grow in holiness? How is God ever going to love you? Remember, child of God, God's declaration that you are righteous. And His declaration is final. There is no higher court of appeals. He's it. So even Satan cannot bring a charge 
against you. Well, who can condemn? Paul's next question. Who can condemn? No one, he says. Paul's just explained in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And more than this, Christ rose from the dead, he says, in, that, in, that, in the rest of that verse. Christ is risen from the dead. He's at the right hand of the Father. And what is he doing there? He's interceding for us. He's praying. Jesus is praying at the Father's side for us. In verses 26 and 27 of chapter 8, we saw that the Spirit intercedes for us. And here, Jesus is interceding for us. Brothers and sisters, that means two people, two persons of the, of the Trinity are praying for you. The Godhead is for you. The whole world could be against you, but God is for you. The judge has made his declaration. The accuser is silenced. There's no one left who can charge you or condemn you. And in that, we can proclaim, like David does in Psalm 56, 11, in God I trust, I am not afraid. What can man do to me? You know, the criticisms or the judgments of man can't condemn you either. Satan can't condemn you, and neither can others. Now there's this, an article, I'm going to send it out later on, on the member chat. And if you're not a member and you'd like to get that, text me personally. There's an article entitled, The Cross and Criticism, where the author applies these verses in Romans to the criticisms that others might make. It's worth quoting him at length right now. So let me, let me quote him. Quote, in response to my sin, the cross has criticized and judged me more intensely, deeply, and truly than anyone else ever could. This permits me to say to all other criticisms, that's just the fraction of it. In the cross of Christ, we begin to discover how to deal with any and all criticisms. By agreeing with God's criticism of me in Christ's cross, I can face any criticisms others may lay against me. In other words, no one can criticize you more than the cross has. Continuing the quote, if you truly take this to heart, the whole world can stand against you, condemn you, or criticize you, and you'll be able to reply, if God has justified me, who can condemn me? If God justifies me, if he accepts me and will never forsake me, then why should I feel insecure or fear criticism? End quote. 
believer, look to what the cross says about you rather than what those who would critique you or criticize you, what they have to say. If there's truth in what they say, then you can humbly repent, even with gratitude for such a critique. Yet, there remains no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when your boss or your family member or or even a fellow Christian says something against you, remember the cross. Remember those two things that the cross says about you. One, nothing and no one can criticize you more than the cross. And secondly, nothing and no one can demonstrate your worth more than the cross. Nothing can demonstrate your worth more than the cross. Because Christ Jesus went there for you. As Paul has been saying in many ways, in this time of the already and not yet, you no longer have to walk in the fear of judgment. You are free. Free to walk in the obedience of faith in this new way of the Spirit. We can walk without fear when we fall. Because in addition to being no condemnation in Christ Jesus our Lord, there's also no separation from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's turn now to that third point, verses 35 to 39. Paul turns in these verses from God's justice to God's love. And the reason Paul is talking about believers not being separated from God's love is because these believers were in the midst of suffering. And it raises a question that that many of us still wonder today, why am I suffering? Why is God punishing me? Has the Father removed His favor from me? Am I separated now from the love of God? Because I'm suffering? The way Paul asks the question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or Hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. We know from the way that he's asking the question that the answer is no. No. When Paul asks who shall separate us, even though the list that follows seems like he should have said what shall separate us, not who, it's because behind Every what, there is a who. There is a who. Suffering, you see, is the result of sin. It's it's living in a world full of sin. We suffer because, well, because of our own sin, but we also sometimes suffer because of the sins of others. Now, it's important to understand God did not create suffering. God didn't create suffering, but it is the reality in which we now live. And as those who 
left the authority of the world to walk in the new way of the Spirit as God's adopted children, we can expect the world to be against us. The world is not for us. We've made a transfer of authority, and the world is, doesn't like that. <laughs> On the last night before he went to the cross, Jesus explained how because of him, the disciples will be put out of the synagogues, and people would try to kill them. He says in John 16, 33, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble, Jesus says. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Paul told Timothy, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be Persecuted. Do you want to live godly? Do you want to live in Christ Jesus? Then you can expect persecution. Now this list in verse 35, it may be Paul's personal illustration. You see, he wrote about every one of those things in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 28. You can look it up later. He had been in prison, beaten, Stoned, shipwrecked, in danger from all sides, had sleepless nights. He went hungry and thirsty. He had been cold and naked and was exposed to death again and again and again. The Apostle Paul knew suffering. And so if suffering was a punishment or, or it was God withdrawing his favor... If that's what suffering is, then Paul would have been the one most at loss. No. You see, Paul follows that list in verse 36. He follows that list with Psalm 44:22, which was read earlier in the service. The psalmist said, they had not forgotten God. They've not been false to his covenant. They've not done anything deserving of suffering, and yet for your sake we face death all day long, he says. Why? Well, God does not remove his children from suffering. It's not a sign that God is against us. Suffering is not that sign. In fact, God may even use suffering to conform us to the image of His Son. You see, pain has a way of, of cracking open hard things. Like those hard places in our hearts that need, to be, that need to be opened and exposed before the love of God. Suffering reveals the idols and other loves, maybe possessions or people or opinions of others that compete with God for our affections. In addition, suffering pushes us to rely more on our church family. It causes us to fulfill those one another commands of Scripture as we help and serve one another through suffering. 
As we face suffering with an unshakable hope, with an unfathomable faith, with an unexplainable peace, then we also proclaim the gospel, the good news. Peter, 1 Peter 3, 14 and 15 says, If you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. When we go through sufferings, it's an opportunity for the gospel. John Piper writes in his book, Filling Up the Afflictions of Christ, he says this, God designs that the suffering of his ambassadors is one essential means in the spread of the gospel among the peoples of the world. That suffering is part of God's strategy for making known to the world who Christ is, how he loves, and how much Christ is worth. This is what an early church pastor Uh, His name was Tertullian. He lived around 160 to 225 AD. It's what he understood too. Persecuted by the Roman government, he wrote this. The more we are killed by you, the more in number we Christians grow. The blood of Christians is the seed. Or as it's been restated, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of Of the gospel. And my friends. Suffering does not separate us. From Christ. If anything it brings us. Closer to him. We are not conquered. By those things. No. As verse 37 says. In all those things. We are more. Than conquerors. Through him who loved us. God's unfailing love brings us through suffering. We're not like those who who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who believe and are saved. We persevere because God is persevering us. So child of God, though you are persecuted, press on in Christ. Though you are persecuted, press on in Christ. And this brings us back to those first questions that we had in verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Paul has pointed to what Christ has done. God is for us because He justifies us. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God is for us because He loves us. In love, He adopted us into His family, making us heirs and co-heirs with Christ. So therefore, in Romans 8, 38 and 39, Paul celebrates this unfailing love With poetic beauty. For I am convinced. That neither death nor life. 
Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, uh, nor, nor, uh, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, the love of God in Christ Jesus is the most powerful force in the universe. We've just had pictures from the new telescope that reach farther into the universe than any pictures ever have, but it cannot capture the love of God. Child of God, no one can snatch you from the Father's hand. Nothing can separate you from His unfailing, steadfast love. It's a bond that cannot be broken. Though I fall, His love is sure. And He is faithful. He is faithful even when we are not. No matter what sin or the world or the devil would try to bring against you to accuse you, it cannot and it will not separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. No, our God is not like us. Our God is not like us. Yet, He calls us to be like Him. He calls us to be like Him. Him. And as we serve in this new way of the Spirit, adopted into His family and walking in the obedience of faith, He is conforming us to the image of His Son. He's calling us to be like Him. Brother and sister, our hope is our Redeemer, and we are forever His in Christ. We can say that because the cross is where God's full love and full justice meet together. We, we, we were born in sin. We were raised in transgression. And we deserve the full wrath of God in the charge of guilt and condemnation. God would be 100. He is 100% just to punish every sin. And yet, God is also 100% love. And this is where the good news is. The good news tells us that this fully just and fully loving God had a plan. He came in the person of Jesus, the eternal Son of God, to justify those He calls to Himself. God did not spare His own Son suffering but willingly gave Him up for all who believe. God's full love was demonstrated in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. Jesus died as our substitute in a final sacrifice of atonement. A final sacrifice. He paid the penalty of sin in full and forever for all who believe in Him. Every sin of every believer is transferred by faith to Christ. And that penalty of all their sin 
was paid for on the cross of Christ. As verse 34 says, Jesus died, but more than that, he was raised again to life. His resurrection then guarantees that he completed the plan the Father gave him. He did it. He fulfilled it. It's also a sign that every human being will be raised in a final judgment, either to eternal life with God or to punishment for sin. Those who don't look to Christ as a substitute must pay for their own sin. So then God is 100% just. And he, that justice will be satisfied. Either by a person on their own or by substitution through Christ. So the big question is, how will you face this just God in the final day? On your own? Or by accepting Christ, His Son? He's reaching out. Christ is reaching out through this plea that you come to Him. Won't you accept His offer of love? Now, believing in His saving work on the cross, receiving that gift of love, will completely transform your life. You will never be the same again. It's because as, Je- as, John, as Jesus said in John 3.3, 3, He said, it, it is like being born again. It's radical. When this happens, nothing and no one will ever be able to separate you from that love. Brothers and sisters, God is for us. No condemnation. No separation from His love. No matter what sufferings we may face, the God who loves and justifies is for us. We can rejoice in this. Nothing that the world offers can compare. So let them take the world, but give us Jesus. At the beginning of the service, we learned that new song. Here again, those lyrics. Take the world. But give me Jesus. All its joys are but a name. But his love abides forever through eternal years the same. Take this world, but give me Jesus. Sweetest comfort of my soul. With the Savior watching over me, I can sing though thunders roll. Take this world, but give me Jesus. In his cross my trust shall be till with clearer Brighter vision, face to face, my Lord, I see. Let's pray. Abba, Father, in your steadfast love and faithfulness, it never ends. In your wisdom, you gave the valuable purchase of our freedom. Christ Jesus, our Lord. Lord, may we give up whatever this world would offer that we may have Christ because He is our reward. He is our hope. And Lord, we are Yours and Christ is ours forevermore. Amen. Well, church, let's stand as we respond by singing, Come rejoice now, O my soul, Christ is mine forevermore.